0: This is A Kick in the Grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: Another edition of A Kick in the Grass is upon us, Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair here with you. Jeff, uh, the FA Cup is in the books. The Serie A title has been awarded. We can look ahead to the Champions League. Um, it's, uh, it's been a wild couple of months, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, it's just, it seems as if it's been, seems as if it's been nonstop. And, you know, I think kudos to folks, not just in running the Bundesliga and running the Prem and and Serie A and, and La Liga, but, you know, kudos as well in particular to the folks at the Women's Soccer League in the United States for really being the first league in the United States to get off the ground successfully, doing it, of course, in a bubble format. But, you know, soccer was soccer was the first sport to kind of dip its toe into the into the deep end of the the pandemic. And it provided the template for a lot of the good things we're seeing right now in North America. So, yeah, I, I, I soccer, I think, has kind of put to rest a lot of the fears a lot of us had about about sports in a pandemic. So that's all to the good.
1: Uh, we will have Sophie Schmidt, uh, NWSL Challenge Cup champion, of course, Canadian women's international, joining us here on the show today, as will Rob Harris, uh, Associated Press, on uh, you know just the last couple of months, the return of football and how it has gone, the future ahead, and a new fresh problem with the courts <laughs> for FIFA. <laughs> and President Gianni Infantino. We will uh, get to all of that. I did want to shout out Nimmer T. Dot, who uh, sent in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Excited to be able to listen to a Canada-based soccer podcast that highlights news from all the major European leagues as well as some Canadian MLS content. Good job getting knowledgeable guests and having awesome interviews. Uh, You can always, we appreciate it. Thank you, Nimmer, for the review, and you can send one in as well. We do appreciate it here on a kick in the grass and always questions comments for the show at sn jeff blair and at Dan rico 650 we'll get to questions in injury time later on today our dms are open you can send them in there as well so let's start on the fa cup jeff arsenal 2-1 winners over chelsea uh, <laughs> how about this we st- Rates Anthony Taylor's performance as a referee because uh, I know Chelsea fans weren't, weren't loving it. No. And,
0: and here's, you know, here's a question I have about, about VAR. Um, I've gone from, I'm, I'm a person, I don't like video review by and large. I think if you're a smart enough fan, you don't need it. But I do see that VAR has played, I think by and large, a, a, a role in, in in i think clarifying things for for soccer fans you know provided they give it a chance my question here you know, it was a it wasn't the worst call i've ever seen but my question here is i don't understand how a second yellow cannot be subject to video review and that was really i i think the core of this issue here the fact that the yeah you know the the second yellow wasn't subject to var look the second yellow is the same thing as a red for the most part and i I don't see why, you know, you can't review a second yellow. It's not like you see it every match. And I certainly think that if you are, if VAR is there to answer some questions, you know, regarding 50-50 plays or or plays where stuff happens simply too fast for the referee, why is it not being used in this situation? So, again, I, you know... I'm reluctant to really hammer on, uh, on officials. As I said, it's not the worst call I've seen. I've seen worse calls not made, but if you're going to look at other stuff, surely to God, a second yellow should be subject to VAR. It just doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like that big a deal to me.
1: I mean, after uh, Nigel De Jong's kick in the 2010 World Cup final, I mean, <laughs> nothing, nothing would deserve a red card after that. Right. <laughs> it was only shown a yellow, but um, no, it, it, the, the conversation, you know, we thought VAR might, you know, eliminate some of the controversy, some of the debates that naturally come out of every big soccer match, it would seem, on, on the decisions that go one way or another. But you know, at the end of the day, in a final, I, I'm not a fan of a soft penalty call, and I thought that that's what that was uh, to get Arsenal back on, on even terms. And then you're right. On the second yellow, if a player is being sent off, then it should be reviewable and uh it, it, that that's something we can both agree on with that um I, I think refereeing in general i think there's been an overreliance on the video review as well and it's it's maybe affected the the overall quality of officiating across you know the top 5 european leagues i'd even say because this has been a problem uh across the board in the top leagues, but let's focus on the football because it was still a, a pretty damn good match. Um, I, I want to start on on Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. Um, Arsenal got to give this guy a blank check if if they want to have any semblance of uh, progress. It it starts with him remaining with this team, Jeff. I know Arteta has has plans to make changes throughout the squad, but. They got to make sure Obama Yang doesn't go anywhere. He's a leader. He's still the star of this team. I know he's getting up there in age, but you got to keep him around for a few more years as this rebuild moves on.
0: Yeah, you have to add some players that play to his strength. You have to add some players that I think uh, allow him to maybe maybe make a little bit of a transition into his later years. You know, He does an awful lot of running. And he's probably always going to have to do that under Arteta, and that's fine. But I, I think they need to figure out a way to address their midfield and and, and really put the emphasis on taking a lot of the, the workload off him. Because if you watch him during a match, the amount of work he does, I'm not going to call it non-productive work, but the amount of work he does that doesn't lead to an attempt or doesn't result in in, in him getting service or doesn't result in somebody finishing off the service that he gives them. It's, it, it, it's really quite remarkable, but I, yeah, if I'm, if I'm Arsenal, he's the guy, he's the guy I build around, you know? And, and the other thing I'll tell you for, I'll, I'll tell you about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. He showed me a lot by coming out of the pandemic pause the way he did, because there were some players that weren't as sharp when they came out. There were some players, frankly, that didn't play themselves into condition. And I thought he he really did.
1: He he was special. And you know, on Saturday, um, you can make the argument he was the only world class footballer out there on the pitch between the two sides. You know, Christian Pulisic went out with injury. Chelsea have got a lot of players incoming uh, when the off season does happen. But um, you know, he is still still a. a a cut above what else we saw in the field and Arsenal, they've got to figure some stuff out. They've got to get rid of Mesut Ozil and, and and bring in some more talent around the squad. But first and foremost, for me, keep Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Um, Mm -hmm. Arteta, Mikel Arteta. I thought he outclassed uh, Lampard here in the, in the manager battle. Um, They really exploited that left side, which, you know, led to uh, the Aubameyang goals, but, and, and it was something that Lampard couldn't figure out which is funny because they did the same thing against Manchester city just a couple of weeks ago in the the FA cup semifinal. Um, but it, you know, Arteta, this is a first trophy and for him and for Arsenal and with Arsenal, it, it feels like everything's positive around this guy right now. And if, if this club support him, if they, you know, allow him to build here and build from this, um, then, then Arsenal could be in pretty good hands. I don't know if they ever win another Premier League title, Jeff, because I don't think they have the same kind of investment plans that Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, and Manchester City certainly have, and that's going to make it difficult for them to reach that apex again. But as, as we've talked about in recent weeks, Mikel Arteta seems like the right man for the job.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think if there's any team in the Premier League that's poised to pull off a, a, a surprise next year and maybe sneak into the top four, sneak into the top three, I, I really do think it's Arsenal. The question is, will the Kroenke family back Mikel Arteta? And I don't know if we will if we will necessarily know that because this is going to be such a strange summer, such a strange transfer period. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a difficult it's going to be a difficult time frame to try to figure out what, what teams intentions are. But what I really need to see, I think from Arsenal more than anything else going into next year, firm up the back line, get rid of some of the, you know, the, the, the extraneous pieces they have in midfield, like Mesut Ozil and and bring in a few more young players. And and I, I don't know, it might be too much to expect them to surprise in one year, but I think, in Mikel Arteta, they have the right guy to take them forward. And you know what I think, the, from watching Arsenal since the restart, I got the sense that for the first time in a long time, Danny, you had players who were enjoying their football, which you didn't see earlier uh, with Arsenal.
1: Well, if they if they still got Unai Emery, they don't, they don't even make the FA Cup final. Um, they certainly don't win it. Uh, so... Uh, this is a, a huge positive for them, and one thing that could be interesting. Lampard talked about this after the match. Um, with all the injuries that Chelsea had, you know, Pulisic goes off with injury, Espiñol uh, also injured. They, Lampard, is already saying, you know, in the interest of fairness, there's no way we can start on September 12th because they've got to go to the Champions League. Uh, Man City's playing in the Champions League as well. Manchester United's headed to the Europa League. And to, to turn the season around in just a few weeks' time is quite quick. But, hey, maybe that's a benefit to Liverpool, to Arsenal, uh, as those teams will get a few weeks off here to prepare, think of what they want to bring into the squad now that the window is open. You know, if, if the season does restart this quickly, it, it could be a huge boost for, for a team like Arsenal.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you also mentioned Liverpool. You know, it has 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 a has a Premier League champion ever been as happy to not have to be involved in Champions League play? Yeah. As Liverpool is? You know, you think about think about the rest these guys are gonna have and you know, and Jurgen Klopp relies a lot in those main players. They're gonna be well rested, they're going to have a proper training regimen in the off season leading up to the, the, the start of the next season, probably more proper, if you want to call it that, than any of the other elite teams in England. So I think this sets up really, really nicely for Liverpool. What, what's going to be interesting though, and I keep thinking about Man City this year, I've got to think Jurgen Klopp is smart enough to realize that you have to make a few additions to your team. You can't sit in your laurels when you win a title. A little bit of churn. The Yankees were great at this when they were winning World Series. A little bit of churn is good. You keep your main players, but bring in some guys who are young and aggressive or guys who are maybe middle-aged and hungry for a title. So I will be interested in seeing what Jurgen Klopp does in that regard. But uh, yeah, this, this plays nicely for Liverpool. This really plays into their hands for next year.
1: Uh, didn't mean to leave out Wolves. They are also uh, still in Europa League action as well as they will take on uh, Olympiakos on Thursday. Uh, so, quick thought on Chelsea here. I thought they were really punchless once um, Christian Pulisic went down with the injury. He's one of the players that impressed me the most after the restart. You you were talking about Yang from that front earlier, Jeff. But uh, Pulisic really found himself after the in the in the break off and was maybe the biggest reason Chelsea locked down that top four spot, uh, he himself. And, yes, there's going to be help coming in with Timo Werner and Zayek and maybe Kai Havertz. Um, But Christian Pulisic, not only just for Chelsea, but for the U.S. Men's National Program as well, is is just a a beam of hope right now for, for these two programs, both internationally and at club level.
0: Yeah, and it's a hell of a debate, isn't it, right now in CONCACAF who the best young player in CONCACAF is? Is it Pulisic or is it—is it, is it Alfonso Davies? Look, Pulisic, I think has he, he looks, when he is on, when he is healthy, he looks exactly like the player we saw playing in the Bundesliga. He, there are some guys that come over from the Bundesliga and they have a hard time transitioning their game to the Premier League because it's a different league. It's officiated differently. There's a different emphasis in physical play, all, all that stuff. He seems to have been able to take the things that served him well in the Bundesliga and translate them into the into the Premier League. I think right now, Chelsea is, is if I compare Chelsea to Manchester United, and it pains me to say this is a Manchester United fan, but I still have Chelsea ahead of Manchester United. And I wouldn't be surprised if they finish ahead of Manchester United next season as well. I think they are, as much as Arsenal, I think could be a surprise. Chelsea, to me, is the team that could make the biggest jump forward. If they can get Havertz, that's you know that's a tremendous, tremendous offseason, given what we're seeing other teams go through right now with the, with the pandemic.
1: Uh, I saw a great meme last week, and it had Chelsea's lineup for for next season and Timo Werner's up top. You have Kai Havertz playing just behind him. Pulisic on the left, Ziek on the right. And then the back four is just named, may God help us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, and, and let's, let's not sleep on Ziek. I think he, he's a wonderful player. Yeah. And I think he's exactly the type of guy that can come into a Premier League side and have an immediate impact. I, I like Werner if Havertz there. I think it's going to take those guys a little bit of time to get used to it. I think Zayac's the type of guy that can come in and hit the ground running. That is just such a smart – that is a smart pickup by Chelsea.
1: All right, so Europa League is starting on Wednesday. Manchester United will be in action, Inter Milan as well, and then you have Wolves on Friday, along with a collection. Or sorry, on Thursday with a collection of others. Champions League begins Friday and Saturday to finish out those round of sixteen matches before they go into Lisbon and have the single elimination tournament uh, to determine the Champions League winner for this year so a uh, quick thought on each match um, let's start with Juventus Leon on Friday Leon leading one nil over Juventus
0: I don't know how anybody I don't know how anybody can look at at at, at the French teams and and, and yeah. think that they and think that they have a shot in this I mean, they, they, they haven't what they played one meaningful match uh, yeah. maybe some friendlies uh, I don't think Either I don't think either French side or any of the French sides have a prayer in this. I I just don't. I I don't. I would be surprised, frankly, if they're even competitive at this stage.
1: They're they're going to park every player they have in front of their net and, and hope for the best, given that they have the one nil advantage on aggregate. But look, Juventus didn't play well even while winning the title. They won two of their last eight matches. You can throw out the last two because the title was already wrapped up. But um, even then, you know, two of uh, six matches before that. Uh, so they, they weren't exactly clicking at the highest level. And for me, this is where they, are, um, where they are judged. If they go out in the round of 16 of the Champions League, I know. Um, this is a weird year but they were already down on aggregate going into this second half. Um it's going to look, be looked at as a disaster for the team. Um and really question the value of what Cristiano Ronaldo has brought uh, to Juventus. So that's, you know, that not getting that result. Danny. Now I know. Don't worry about it. They're not losing. And <laughs> in, in the chance that they do, it will be a disaster. Uh City yeah, and is, Manchester City got, and Real This has
0: Man- got 3-0. This has got 3-0 written all over it.
1: All right, Uh, Manchester City, Real Madrid. Uh, Two genuine favorites here. City is up 2-1 on aggregate. I think Pep and City have a newfound hunger after uh, the court hearing, Jeff. And Madrid, yeah, they won La Liga, and and they were really quality. We talked about how much Zidane really found the best version of this team. But in order for them to overturn this, because they're down 2-1 going to the Etihad, they need offense, and that's probably the area. Like, I... I don't know if they can keep up with City. I don't know if they can keep City off the scoreboard, and therefore, I don't. I don't know if they can overturn this result.
0: Yeah, I'm with you completely on this. I, I find this uh, honestly. I find this the hardest match to call uh, uh, out of any of them. Um, I still, I, I just, I still have a feeling that Man City's weakness at the back is going to cost them. Um, and there's man, there's something about Real this year. And there's something about Zidane uh this year and and i I think at the end of the day they probably have enough depth to pull this over the line but i am uh, of all the calls i'm going to make this is the one i'm least i'm least comfortable with because i can see you know you can drop a list pros and cons you can come up with you know five reasons man city should win five reasons they shouldn't win five reasons real madrid should win (laughs) Five reasons why they shouldn't win. I find this really fascinating, but I'm 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 going to go with Real just because I like where they are right now. I really do.
1: On Saturday, Barcelona and Napoli, and I, I love the storyline going into this one. They're tied 1-1 on aggregate going back to uh, the Camp Nou, but uh, a broken Barcelona team against Napoli, who you know they just fight as a unit under Gattuso, right? <laughs> like that's yep. that is that is their M.O. So trying to see Barca and more ap- applicably uh, just Messi try to overcome that is is really the storyline of this match. Can Messi do enough against this Napoli team who we know is just going to get stuck in and make it as difficult as possible?
0: Yeah, I'm 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 going with Napoli in this. I just think it's you're right, it's such a fascinating story. Look, I uh, I love Gattuso. I, I I always have. I mean, it, it pained me as a you know as a German fan, but I Gattuso was one of my favorite players. I absolutely loved watching him play, and I love I love the way he runs this team, and I love the way this team plays for him. And and it's boy, it, these are two teams that are at kind of when you, when you talk about mentality and you talk about mindset and you talk about all of that stuff. Kind of at different levels right now. You know, Barcelona hates its manager for the most part. The players don't like a lot, don't like each other in a lot of instances. And Napoli is the exact opposite. They would literally run through the wall for their manager. And I think there's a sense with Napoli too that they have some players that are moving on. And you know, I think this is this is just a great it's a great underdog story for Napoli. And I can absolutely see Gattuso pushing these guys through.
1: They uh, they beat Juventus in the uh, Coppa Italia final on penalties. Um, this is it's not going to be an easy one for for Barcelona. Napoli uh, trying to trying to make good on the stink that uh, Carlo Ancelotti left uh, with his terrible uh, start mm-hmm. to the season for that club. And finally, Bayern Chelsea. We know Bayern are up three nil on this one. Chelsea. Uh, it almost feels as though Chelsea would rather this match not even have to happen, given all the injuries. Uh, that they've got and the big deficit they've got to overturn. Uh, how do you look at this matchup? It, for me, it feels like a warm-up for Bayern as they get ready for the tournament.
0: Yeah, I still think Bayern is has to be the favorite going into this. I, you know, if Real had been more impressive, then I might look at Real as being the favorite going in this. But my goodness, could Bayern do anything else after the reset? <laughs> I mean, what what could they conceivably have done? How could they have played any different? Um, they were as close to perfect coming out of the pandemic as any team we've seen. I yeah. see no reason. I see no reason, Dan, for that to stop because of the layoff. Hansi Flick has used a lot of players. He's tried a lot of different tactics. He's got a handle, I think, on 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 what the guys can do for him off the bench. He's got to re-energize Thomas Muller, who I think is still. Yeah. he he's got to have eyes on, on getting back to the German national team. I think, I think Bayern really is, is a team to beat. And, and I just don't see them. I, I don't see anybody in this tournament right now beating them. I, I can't. Yeah.
1: They, they are, they've been so good. And I still feel that they are the, the favorite as well going into this and what it could mean for alfonso Davies. Right. Um, the, the first leg of this match was his coming out party to mm-hmm. uh, world football, really. The way that he just absolutely destroyed Mason Mount down that left flank and handled uh, Chelsea really was the moment that Davies was looked at as one of the golden boys of Europe from an under-21 perspective. Um, so it's going to be fascinating. Friday, Saturday, Champions League matchups to come. And we'll continue breaking it down next week as they get closer to the actual tournament starting on August 12th uh, for the final eight in single elimination. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair are kicking the grass. Let's now welcome into the show Rob Harris of the Associated Press uh, to join us. as uh, FIFA's got some problems once again from a criminal investigation standpoint. Johnny Infantino is under investigation. And also, uh, just what this has looked like covering the game over the last couple of months. Thanks for this Rob. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? Uh we're doing well. We're doing well. It's uh well, I mean the FA Cup wraps up this uh, this past weekend um but uh you have been you've been traveling around watching all these matches um in quick fashion. What's it been uh, 16, 17 matches over the last 30 or so days?
2: Yeah, it's been 18 games in 6 weeks. It's been pretty intense, but really fascinating chance to be able to go into these games that are part of history the fact that we hope it won't be long before fans are coming back into stadiums and being one of what only 300 or so people at the stadiums I was there on the first night when Project Restart got going with Arsenal being absolutely crushed by Manchester City. Amazing to think that the domestic campaign would end then with Arsenal picking up a trophy by beating beating Chelsea. And of course, on the way, being at Anfield for that trophy presentation, the one we always knew was going to take place, just a matter of when. And seeing the unusual sights of obviously Anfield engulfed in fireworks and pyrotechnics because there was no fans in there at all. Rob,
0: what did you notice about the game itself as we moved past project restart into kind of the meat, I guess, of the restart? Would, did were 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 the games more in keeping with Premier League quality as
2: it went as they went along? Something that's been observed quite interestingly about the whole period of the last six weeks is the fact that unusually, every game has been live on television in the UK. Normally only around 200 out of the 380 are actually available for live viewing in in Britain. That's to protect the match-going audiences to make sure it doesn't deter people from going to games, particularly lower down the divisions. So while the rest of the world has had the chance to watch all the games, this is the first time we've had that situation in the UK, which means you're seeing games of not a lot of quality at times. So that does perhaps cloud some of the judgments because perhaps normally some of those lesser games not to be too disparaging towards some of the teams they only make a few moments of highlights on programs like the match of the day program fronted by Gary Lineker but um, I, th- I think we have felt the absence of fans from the stadiums and it has affected the games particularly I was at the King Power when Leicester played Manchester United for what became obviously that shootout effectively for a Champions League place and I all I was thinking that day was just how different would it have been a full stadium packed with Leicester fans? Could they have made that slight difference in terms of um, pushing the, the players and helping them sort of put get themselves over the line? Because I think that's one of the the really regrettable stories of the season, but away from the whole pandemic, just the fact Leicester having spent from September until July in the top four, suddenly in the in the closing stages um, collapse, and obviously are now not in the Champions League that season.
1: Yeah, and uh, that that was one of the tough, uh, tough, tough stories of the return. At least for them, I'm sure Manchester United and Chelsea fans aren't uh, aren't as worried about it right now. Um, but but what is the way forward? You know, uh, Frank Lampard has already talked about um, this being too quick of a restart for next season, as they kind of target uh, September 12th. But what what is the way forward now for the Premier League and and some of the other leagues in Europe? How quickly do they get things going and Will we see fans back in the stadium soon?
2: I mean, it's such a rapid turnaround. They're talking about holding the Community Shield on the final weekend of August. So we're just weeks away from the new season (laughs) beginning. And obviously, that involves the champions, Liverpool against the FA Cup winners, Arsenal. And obviously, the fact neither of them are still in European competitions does help in some way. But of course, if Manchester City and Chelsea do reach the Champions League final in three weeks' time, if Manchester United, Wolves find a way into the Europa League final, we're talking about their seasons ending in the third week of August and they're starting up again on September the 12th. Before they do start the season again, they would have to have some warm-up games of some sort, some break. So there is a sense that maybe there will be a delayed start to the season for those teams that do reach the final stages uh, of the European competitions. But there's very little time without any break at all. And of course, if you are um, wanting your complete football fix, of course, the we have the Europa League, the Champions League and the Women's Champions League all running through um, August. And then in England, you've got the Women's Super League starting up in the first uh, week of September. And Also, you've got the uh, the Men's Nations League games as well. So it's all on uh, football all the way through to... Uh, I'll say next July. Then it spills over into the um, Olympics as well in Tokyo.
0: Rob, you know a lot of people are wondering what type of an impact the economic fallout of COVID nineteen will have on the transfer market. But you just touched on something. What type of an impact is the calendar going to have on the market? I mean, if, if if you're Manchester City and you're playing, you're playing in the you get to the Champions League final, or you're you're playing meaningful games right up right up until the third week of August how do, you, how do you go about planning for next season at the same time you know you're I, I know you, it's a matter of having to walk and chew gum at the same time I guess but but man that's really going to test a lot of teams they're sort of their tactical their off-field tactical things isn't it
2: yeah and obviously it can have a, an impact on say a club like Tottenham Hotspur who because of Arsenal winning the FA Cup means that Spurs have to go into qualifying now for the Europa League in September so they've got to play these qualifiers so they'll enter the final period of the summer transfer window not knowing whether or not they will have UEFA income from the Europa League when that group stage begins in October. Arsenal do go straight into the Europa League and of course the other big thing which I Whereas I didn't answer from the previous question is when fans return, because the return mm-hmm. of fans is obviously significant for the revenue and the budgets of teams. Because without fans, clubs are missing out on huge amounts. Club like Tottenham, maybe up to £5 million per match day as they've got that new 60,000 seat stadium with all the facilities in that they'd managed to get um, about just under a year of before the pandemic hit, of their fans going in. The way things are looking at the moment is potentially there could be some delay over the return of fans. We are looking officially at October is the moment fans can start to return into stadiums. That was the announcement from uh, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, in July. The problem is they were due to be running pilot schemes with a phased return of fans at the moment. But there was the additional announcement from Boris Johnson then last week the fact that those plans were being put on hold so no spectators at the glorious goodwood horse racing no spectators at some cricket and although they had been able to go on day one of the world snooker championships no more fans for the remainder of that event in sheffield it's all because of the concern about the rising infections of the coronavirus and that is going to be the thing that ultimately dictates whether or not um fans can return and also how many of them can return into stadiums we're not looking at full stadiums certainly for a long time that's what one of the government advisors told me recently he thinks it could be a year away and even if and when Premier League stadiums are open to fans from October well even then if if the stadium could be at 25 percent capacity that would be A good thing for clubs. I mean, they're going to struggle for anything higher than that. I mean, maybe just getting fans in at all and some money is the start of things. Of course, they've got all the match day costs of running the stadium as well at a time when they can't actually fill them.
1: Yeah, and here in. uh here in Vancouver, there's there's been talk that there, there, there will be uh, no fans at any uh, type of sporting event until there's a vaccine. So um, that's it's it's going to be a while uh, before we see that from a regular perspective uh, anywhere on the football football world. Um, it is Rob Harris of the Associated Press joining us and. You know, it's already been a weird enough year in in 2020, so why not throw in another FIFA scandal um, to to the mix? As uh, the president, Johnny Infantino, is now under criminal investigation. Um, how serious is this for the FIFA president?
2: I mean, this, this is really serious for him. The fact he's under criminal investigation. It's not like his battles with other football leaders or the confederation leaders that he's had during his uh, four-year presidency. This is something beyond the realms of football that ultimately is in the hands of a uh, special prosecutor now in Switzerland. And it all relates to undisclosed meetings with the Attorney General of Switzerland, Michael Laba. Now, John Infantino and FIFA insist, well, it's not really a matter for them, the fact that these weren't disclosed on the Attorney General side, and they believe it's perfectly legitimate for him to be meeting the Attorney General to discuss the uh, the widespread investigations into world football and matters stemming from FIFA. So, of course, it's five years, amazingly, since those arrests at the uh, Borrelak Hotel in Zurich around the FIFA Congress in May 2015, when we started to see so many football officials, including the CONCACAF president, Jeffrey Webb, at the time being taken away, so many officials in other parts of the world then also being detained. And an investigation that does still continue, just in recent months, the, the fact that they um, issued new indictments that include some allegations against Qatar and the World Cup bid as well, although they didn't bring charges directly to that part of it. But so FIFA say that they have an obligation to meet the people who are ultimately leading these investigations. What is incredible, though, and speaking to FIFA's top lawyer about this, is the fact that Infantino didn't keep any notes or minutes of these meetings, and yeah. which seems... You know, as I put it to the to FIFA's Deputy Secretary-General Alistair Bell, potentially reckless. He denied it was such. The fact that he's going in to meet these people and not making notes, even to brief other people at FIFA. And they believe there's some sort of agenda at play to try to um, affect the presidency. But certainly it's a very serious matter for, for Michael Lauber. And um, as Attorney General, he's already offered to to resign in the uh, the last couple of weeks. And... What we've seen with Swiss investigations down the years, particularly around FIFA, is that they can go on for some time, which means this is a question mark that that, that lingers um, as it perhaps doesn't necessarily reach a speedy and early uh, resolution.
0: What type of an impact is this going to have on you know, the planning that FIFA has to do? Yeah, already we've talked about this international calendar is, is, is going to be, well, it, it's going to be a mess, um, you know, you don't know about the the speed of the development of a vaccine. I mean, it stands to reason that not every country is going to recover from the pandemic at the same time. There's clearly there's going to have to be a lot of juggling going on here. Is this going to have an impact, do you think, on FIFA's ability to, to finally get the international calendar figured out? And also, I guess, to, you know, to nail down sponsorship agreements?
2: Yeah. I mean, FIFA obviously do have significant cash reserves that they are now using to distribute funds to the national associations and confederations they've issued in the last week or so the guidelines that federations have to follow to be able to meet the requirements to receive the funding and there's going to be federations hit for some time particularly with matches being held without any fans for some countries that's a key source of revenue for others they are more reliant on the broadcast money and we look at the uncertainty going forward in terms of international travel and quarantines and the abilities of countries and national teams to go around the world to, uh, to play their matches. We are still obviously over two years away from the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, but there is that on the horizon, obviously a, 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 a huge event where people will be travelling in significant numbers too. And the whole search for a vaccine obviously, is one of those key things. And then it's the rollout of the vaccine, ensuring there's a wide universal uh, distribution of it and it's taken up, which helps to um, ensure the world starts to gain some sort of protection. It's not easy to get corona's vaccines. It's not happened in the past. They are optimistic, though, in in the UK that one might be coming. And the other thing as well being talked about in Britain are more rapid coronavirus tests. So they're talking now about potentially getting the results in 90 minutes so it does speed up the process it doesn't require lab testing as well which could be so key to um, getting people into events and, and into places and health passports and that's something the Premier League has been talking about and what we've seen perhaps in the last few months is the congested football calendar and the impact of it as well the fact there's so little wriggle room to uh, to fit games and it just needs something like the Delay we've had, and it suddenly throws things completely out of kilter. It means you're looking at teams finishing the Champions League and Europa League in late August, having to resume a new season straight away, one that goes all the way through to next July with the Continental Championships as well. And, you know, you see the potential long term impact in terms of the health of players, the workload, the burden on on their bodies. And I think we'll be seeing a lot of analytics, a lot of analysis of the recent weeks and whether or not there'd be more injuries because they've been playing football in a more congested time period and then the other point you bring up is of course, sponsors because to fund a lot of these competitions you're relying on the sponsors and these are big corporations that are going to be hit by the fallout from the coronavirus as we sense of course the fears from the world bank that a recession is looming quite heavily in so many parts of the world so FIFA do have their current sponsorships through to 2022, but then you look beyond that, and this whole window and picture of uncertainty for sport and for the economy more widely.
1: Will Infantino remain president um, while the investigation is ongoing?
2: FIFA insisting that he has no reason to give up any of his responsibilities. He can remain president in full. I, you know, I have asked him in particular about how he can remain part of dealings on the criminal cases and the cases into FIFA. I mean, because he is now party to that. And, you know, it would seem quite incredible if he was still part of those discussions when he is central to them. I mean, how can even the Swiss authorities talk to him if they need to or the American authorities? And that was something that Alistair Bell, the Deputy Secretary General, who was a lawyer himself, was talking about in terms of he's been dealing with a lot of the meetings with the the US authorities. As it stands now, he is determined to continue in power. The Ethics Committee could, if they chose to suspend him potentially, if they found there were grounds to, It's that the powers are with the Ethics Committee. But we have seen other figures on the FIFA Council who have not been suspended while they're subject to allegations, such as the CAF president, Ahmed Ahmad, who uh, remains, of course, as such also a FIFA vice president, while he's been subject to investigations as well into his conduct. In fact, he was arrested in Paris when we were there for the FIFA Congress uh, in June 2019. But um, it'd be interesting to see how Infantino's critics use this and how they do uh, potentially circle. I mean, he did get elected for a full four-year term um, last year in Paris. So currently, you know, he does have uh, around three years left of, of his mandate.
0: Uh, Rob, I wanted to, to bring it back to the Premier League just for a minute. Um, uh, look, obviously, uh, Liverpool was going to win this thing. I mean, it was almost a coronation, it seemed, more than, any, than anything else. Um Manchester City, a strong second. Then you have Chelsea. Uh, you've got Manchester United. And then below them, you've got teams like uh, you know Tottenham, Arsenal, uh, Leicester. Is there anybody you see right now capable of sort of knocking off either Liverpool or Man City and maybe sneaking in to get second or possibly even, even first? Understanding we haven't gone through a transfer period yet.
2: Yeah, I suppose it brings to what what other transfer challenges for clubs, particularly Chelsea, certainly have a need to strengthen that uh, defence. I mean, they were so leaky at times, particularly so susceptible at set pieces. I was at West Ham when they uh, they collapsed and that obviously proved to um, be very significant for West Ham's survival hopes, ultimately not as damaging for Chelsea because they still made the top four. But it was one of those reminders of the, uh, the weaknesses, the frailties in Frank Lampard's Chelsea side. And... Obviously, the fact losing the final, the FA Cup, rather than being able to finish his first season in management as, with a trophy. But, I mean, certainly, you know, you could say Frank Lampard has had a successful first season bringing them back into the Champions League when he couldn't make any signings, in part because of the uh, the FIFA ban. And so there is still a hope if they can overturn that 3 0 deficit against Bayern Munich that they do progress still further into the quarterfinals of the Champions League this month, too. Uh, Manchester United under Oli Gunnar Solskjaer so many of us thought he might have gone in January after that defeat to Burnley the way they turned it around to mount that unbeaten run all the way through to uh, victory over Leicester has really transformed things at United the fact they are in the Champions League gives them that financial firepower so they can potentially pursue the signing of Jaden Sancho from Borussia Dortmund they can know that the Champions League money is coming in they also know they're at um, their Adidas sponsorship money will not take a, a hit be, by being at the Champions League for, t- for two years running. And of course, they've still got hope of um, winning the Europa League as well. And um, you, you then look at, you know, can anyone break into that um, top four? Wow. This was Leicester's big chance at a season when mm-hmm. Chelsea were so frail at times. Of course, Manchester United were able to sort of fight their way back in there. I mean, I think it's the lowest points t- total for third place think, for like twenty years I think I saw. So that certainly tells you something about the um you know, the quality of the league this season. And then you look to see what Jason Mourinho can do at uh, Tottenham. He's not had um a full season. obviously he only arrived in November. The fact you managed to get them into the uh, Europa League spots in sixth place up from Fourteenth, when Pottigina left, is a success. Although Arsenal winning the FA Cup means, of course, as we mentioned, the fact they have to go into qualifying in September, which would be pretty grueling. And Tottenham have various issues to deal with, whether it's Mourinho's um, difficult relationship with Undombele, um, that is one to do, one to tackle. Is their most expensive signing? They need to find a way of resolving that situation. And of course, always the sense they need some sort of cover for Harry Kane because when we saw Kane out and Son and Min out, uh, that was particularly costly. And then the pandemic obviously came at a time which allowed those players um, to recover. And then what do Arsenal do? Arsenal with a full season under Mikel Arteta, they've got to deal with the Mesut Ozil situation. A player was completely out of favour wasn't even at Wembley on Saturday for the FA Cup final yet highest earning player with, a, with um, time left on his contract so you know they need to find a resolution to that situation so so many variables across the, uh, the league which means that although the Premier League is finally uh, finished that there's going to be so much to talk about and so much for the clubs to try to, uh, to resolve
1: and as we talked about off the top uh, not, not a whole lot of turnaround before next season begins uh, Rob really uh, really appreciate the time thank you for this today
2: Great chatting to you as ever, and uh, keep well.
1: You too, Rob. Cheers. There is Rob Harris. You can follow him on Twitter by his name. When we come back, Canadian International NWSL Challenge Cup champion, Sophie Schmidt joins us next on A Kick in the Grass. Back in on A Kick in the Grass, Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair with you. And... Last week, Sophie Schmidt and the Houston Dash were the champions. Were crowned champions of the NWSL Challenge Cup. She'll so be joining us here in just a second. A um, lot of Canadians in this tournament. There was, I believe, twelve to fifteen Canadians that participated in the NWSL Challenge Cup. Jeff, but my question is, when do we see an NWSL team in Canada?
0: Boy, that's that's the big question. I mean, look, the to me the two the two the two biggest gaps in canadian sports right now the two biggest vacuums in canadian sports right now would be having a wnba team in canada and having an nwsl team in canada those are two growth sports for women what kind of would concern me a little bit is you know i wonder if maybe you wouldn't see issues with women's soccer that we've seen with women's hockey in this country. But women's hockey is a destination for Canadian television viewers. Women's soccer is a destination. I'm talking about the national team. It's a, it's destination TV viewing for Canadian sports fans. There's a rich tradition of success of, you know, transcendent Canadian women's soccer players just as there's a rich tradition tradition of success and transcendent players in Canadian women's hockey. And I wonder if, if a fan base that has been so conditioned to get worked up for national team games, I wonder if you wouldn't see it have a difficult time getting worked up for a club team. You know, I think that's one of the things that, that hampers women's club hockey in this country is it doesn't matter who you put in the ice. It doesn't matter where you play. You're not going to recreate the drama of Canada versus the U.S. in international hockey. Same thing, I think, kind of holds true for soccer. But look, you still have to give it a go. There's absolutely no reason you couldn't have a women's team in Toronto or Vancouver. Um, You know, the time is right. It's a great product. We've got another generation of Canadian players coming up now. You know, the cupboard isn't bare after Christine Sinclair, as a lot of people thought it would be. So, you know, the time would be right, man. The time would absolutely be right.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got Jesse Fleming going to Chelsea. That was a big story last week. You've got Jordan Heidema, who looks uh, like she could be that future goal scorer Mm -hmm. for the Canadian team. Um, You know, I just... I wonder what's going on, like TFC, the Whitecaps, you know, the Houston Dash are connected to the Houston Dynamo in in MLS. We're seeing a lot of these NWSL teams are connected. The Portland Thorns, where Christine Sinclair plays right now, um, they're right there with the the Portland Timbers. You know, this I'm not sure what the holdup is, but there's got to be something there that makes sense. Uh, for especially Toronto FC and, and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment with the money that they've got, they should be able to pull this off unless you know, there's a thought to create a, a full-on Canadian women's division a la the Canadian Men's Premier League. So um, these are the next steps. It's great. It's got to happen because the longer this waits, the more chance there is that our Canadian international team uh, loses ground on some of the top nations – in the world where you're seeing France has a really strong top women's division. England's is growing. Um, and of course, uh, the U S are always the juggernaut that's got to happen soon. And let's get into more of these topics with our next guest. She is a Canadian women's international. She's an NWSL challenge cup champion, Sophie Schmidt. Thanks for this, Sophie. Congratulations. How are you? Thank
3: you. Doing great. Uh, still, still buzzing from that win for sure.
1: So uh the the celebrations, how have they been? Winning the title? I mean what's uh what's just uh how was it after and, and what has the last week been for you?
3: Uh it's it's been uh absolutely phenomenal. We definitely uh overachieved what we thought we would do in the tournament, so that was great. And then post game celebrations were epic <laughs> in Utah. <laughs> um, kind of but on our own isolated of course and coming back to Houston, uh the reception has been phenomenal. Everything's shut down, the city's hurting a bit, but We uh, celebrated in style. We had a a drive-through celebration on Thursday where we set up a huge stage and anybody who wanted to could come by in their car and celebrate with us. So that was definitely special and unique.
0: Sophie, uh, the league was the first North American league to successfully get up and running and uh, using the bubble concept that a lot of other leagues are using what does that say about the women's game the 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 management of the women's game and and tell us a little bit about what life in the bubble was like
3: yeah absolutely um we were very proud uh to be the first league to figure it out and get it up and running and to get all the protocols in place i would say that the med staff and the league did a very good job of ensuring uh player safety first and foremost and yeah it it was definitely not easy to be in the bubble in the lead up into it it was a lot of isolated trainings to small group trainings to team trainings and constantly being nose swab tested isn't fun um but uh very proud of of the organizations and the team in the league the way we handled it Um, being in a bubble is not easy as as you guys can see in the other leagues that the temptation is there to to break protocol and go out and enjoy life a bit but Uh, We definitely hunkered down for a month and did not leave basically our hotel and the training ground, um, which which was tough mentally and uh, especially with all the things that are going on in the world. It's not easy. And we've had people being affected with COVID and family members passing away and things like that. So, yeah, definitely a lot of challenges, but uh, we definitely overcame. And I think it just shows a testament to uh, the women's game and their determination to uh, set their mark and set a precedent.
1: And it, it was um, successful, um, you know, I think over 600,000 viewers on CBS south of the border there. And mm-hmm. it, it really it gave a stage and, and the quality was good. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of positives to take out, out of this um, as, as difficult as it might have been.
3: Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of buzz around town. Everybody, I think, was just eager for live sports to be back, and I think that showed in the numbers, and And we were just happy to kind of get out there and perform. It was strange to do empty stadiums, but uh, it's fantastic to see the support uh, online.
0: What do you think the key will be, Sophie, to build on this?
3: Uh, I guess it depends where things go, but... Uh, just kind of finding a way to stay relevant uh, right now. We're trying to figure out the clubs are um, how to get some games in uh, what the next step is, or do we wait all the way till next season? So I think it's trying to stay in the public eye, keep getting games out there for people to see. Um, but it's going to be tough. The next couple of months are definitely going to be a challenge.
1: Sophie Schmidt, uh, NWSL challenge cup champion joining us. And it's, you scored. You score in the final. You mentioned weirdness without fans. Um, just kind of describe what that's like. I mean, playing on the biggest stage in the world, playing in World Cups for Canada, and and then playing in in front of nobody. It's um, how was that for the motivation uh, for the mentality of a player?
3: Yeah, it was it was different, but then at the same time, I mean, especially as a female soccer player, um, it's something that you've you're not. You're kind of not used to it, but it's like it's it's been a part of kind of the history of where we've come from, from the women's side. And definitely miss the fans because especially, you know, when those, the moment gets tough, they're, they're supporting you or heckling you or something. Um, but the, the team did a really good job of building each other up. I think the biggest, I have nothing but great things to say about the the people that weren't on the field playing, the support from the bench and the staff. They were providing energy to us in those games, and it was pretty incredible um, but, you know, we wanted, we also knew that there was fans uh, out there that they were supporting us. And I think especially coming from Houston, it's been really hit hard with COVID. Uh, we knew that we were also playing and fighting for something bigger than ourselves. And that definitely drove the motivation factor and the never give up, don't never die mentality.
0: Sophie, where is the women's game now in North America compared to let's say five or six years ago?
3: Oh, we've taken tremendous strides. Absolutely. I think s- Especially south of the border, here in the U.S., Um, it's the game. The game has grown, and uh, the U.S. side has been uh, a thriving force in that. And I think having the NWSL stick around consistently for a couple years now, they have a base. There's excitement. There's buzz, and other teams joining the league next year in Louisville, and then um, Angels like LA Angel City joining the year after that. So the game's going, the excitement's there, the support is there, fans are there, and like there's so many young some girls out there playing soccer, so it's nice to have that opportunity. But I think in Canada, we're still still steps behind. Uh, we need to get uh, at least a semi-pro league, if not a pro league, uh, get it like going, whether that's an independent entity or a part of the NWSL, we need to figure that out, but uh, definitely need to figure out something for, for the for the young girls and the female players in Canada to support them better, or else we'll start falling behind, I think.
1: Is it time for a Canadian team in, in NWSL?
3: I think so. Why not? Uh, I was ready yeah. years ago, years ago, with the Whitecaps <laughs> rumors that were happening. Um, yeah. But I think it would just be so great for Canadians. Um, I know that, like, logistics is something that needs to be worked out, but I mean, we're so hungry for for women's soccer in Canada, and uh, yeah, it's coming. I think it's coming. It's just got we got to take those those steps.
0: Sophie, it seems to me that in some ways, one of the issues with the women's club team in Canada, and this is something that I think you had a hand in is being part of the national team, is that it's a little bit like women's hockey in that our women's national team is such a I mean, it's such a it's such a focal point in, uh, for soccer fans in this country. I mean, the history of the women's program, the personalities, you know, London, uh, was a great, just a great Canadian sports moment. Uh, I mean, it felt like a gold medal, I think for, a, for a lot of people, Sophie. And I'm just wondering, do you think in some ways that that, that kind of hurts it and that uh, as a country, we rally around the women's team and it's good. It's going to be hard to find a team that kind of engenders that, that nationwide support if you stick a team in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal or wherever?
3: Potentially, but I think it's people are also going to just support uh, Canada. So I think it'll be hard if there's no Canadians on a team and let's say Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, wherever it happens. um, That would be difficult. And like, I mean, like best case scenario, Christine Sinclair is playing for that club. But I mean, that's an ideal world. It might be hard for fans to get behind it, but I think just having like that just supporting a Canadian club. I think that identity from the national team will carry over to club and people will rally behind that. Maybe not to the same extent, but definitely I think the support will be there.
1: Well and and, and we've seen it with the Canadian Premier League, uh on the men's side. You know, it's not easy to create uh a division out of nothing um in Canada given you know, soccer is is still a growing sport uh, across the country, um, but you know there 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 there's got to be room for for a women's division. We've seen the support with the national team, and like you mentioned, it's it's kind of imperative given what we're seeing in Europe and how much you know countries there have, have really bought into to having top top women's leagues, top divisions for women. I mean, we're we're only going to fall further behind as as a nation if if this doesn't happen soon.
3: Absolutely. 100% agree with you on that point. And like, like you said, it's not easy to establish something from nothing. Um, but like you said about how Canada soccer's grown and the players, uh, so many of the players, um, my generation, a little bit older, like Sinc- Christine Sinclair, Diana Matheson, Rob Miguel, Ryan Wilke, like these big names, they started in the, uh, I think, what was it, W League? Right, with well, the white Whitecaps yeah. before and Ottawa Fury and like everyone was playing in those leagues they were there at university, summertime, playing in those leagues even if you weren't in the US you could still play, like if you were playing Canada you, there was a platform there and I think that's it contributed a huge amount to the success of where we are now as as a country and I think we need to get back to refocusing on that and giving, giving players a platform to play at. even though it's challenging and it's going to be hard but yeah, we just need a couple years
0: Sophie, you know, look, the one of the things the quarantine or I'm sorry, the pandemic has done is it's really kind of thrown a wrench into the entire international schedule. It's done a, throwing a wrench into a lot of things. But how, how concerned are you or how much attention are you paying right now to to how the Canadian national team is going to come out of this, especially since there, you know, there will be a coaching change as well?
3: Yeah, it's, it's tough to kind of wrap your head around it because there are so many unknowns and it's difficult to get stressed about too much. There's no answers mm-hmm. uh, currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think definitely once we find out who the next coach is, that's one big step um, in terms of the planning process. In terms of us meeting again, oh, it's so hard. Like We want to get back together as soon as we can. And we know there's FIFA windows, so we don't know if FIFA is going to allow teams to participate Participate in that and with COVID, but I think the biggest thing right now is individually players making sure that they're finding a good environment, clubs, a couple of girls gone over to Europe um, to find find teams to play for there. And I think making sure that physically and we're getting game time is like the best thing we can do right now with the situation given. Um and then as soon as we can get back together we'll work really hard but it's definitely challenging and a bit daunting especially with a huge event like the olympics potentially next summer um but you know we're trying to just turn over every stone that we can in our own little ways
1: yeah and, and there's so much promise uh, within the team um but missing out on the olympics this summer and hoping and trying to prep for it uh next summer with all these unknowns it's uh, it, it can't really be all that easy right
3: yeah, no, 100%. And it's like mentally also getting back up. You know, we we're we we're preparing for the Olympics for this year and you physically put in a shift and then now it's like reset and let's go again, kind of a, a thing. It's, it's a, definitely a challenge.
1: Sophie, uh, we really appreciate the time today. Uh, congratulations on the the Challenge Cup win with you and your, your teammates at the Houston Dash. And uh, we hope to see you back on the pitch soon. Thank
3: you. Thanks for having me.
1: There is Sophie Schmidt of the Canadian women's national team and the Challenge Cup champion, Houston Dash. Coming back with your questions, injury time is next on A Kick in the Grass. Final segment of A Kick in the Grass, Dan Richo and Jeff Blair. This is where we answer your questions. You can send them in at danricho650 and at Blair. We will take them. DMs are open, so you can send them in through that way. All right, listener questions for this week. Jeff Luca says, "Who has the best chance of stopping Juventus from winning a tenth straight Serie A title?"
0: Oh,
1: <laughs> nobody.
0: No, I, uh, you, you, uh, no, I, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody does it. I'm sitting here. Yeah, you, know, you you could, you could sit there and say, well, you know, maybe Lazio. Look, history will show us that Lazio is probably going to fall off the face of the earth uh, after after this year. I think this well, they you know did this during May the restart. Their shot. <laughs> Yeah, so I uh, I don't have any Danny, I'd love to say there's somebody could step up there, but I don't have any faith in anybody taking a run at them. You know, I just don't.
1: Well, I mean Inter would be would be the the choice, the best chance. They've already you know, signed uh, Ashraf Hakimi. But now you've got Antonio Conte causing all kinds of trouble with ownership like he's done before at Chelsea and Juventus and the Italian Federation. Um, the same old story. So if you throw that uh, into the storyline as a wrench, um, Inter maybe falling behind from Juventus, then getting closer. Uh, Tom has this question. What's next for Eddie Howe? Uh, he and Bournemouth uh, part ways. A love story is, is over.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I listened to uh, the Guardian podcast um, yeah. this week and they were talking about Eddie Howe and a couple of folks on that show mentioned they thought that he looked awful as the season went on. You know, physically they were talking about there were there were people around the club that had really grave concerns about him. if you saw his interviews, he just look like a different guy. I think this is just an example of a player and a club maybe not falling out of love, but just kind of running out of time. What I would like to see him do is the same thing I like to see a lot of managers of his status and in his position do step back and wait. Don't jump at the first offer. You know, there there are going to be some teams in the championship next year who would bear watching. There are teams going up to the Premiership with managers that, you know, I I don't think are necessarily, it's not necessarily carved in stone that they're going to finish the year there. If I'm Eddie Howe, I'm just biding my time and maybe getting getting a job as a pundit, maybe getting on the couch or so for a year, but I'm playing my cards very, very smartly and I'm definitely, I'm definitely not jumping at the first offer.
1: What he did with Bournemouth is, and, and the budgets that they had there to keep them in the prem for as many years to get them into the prem uh, was, was special enough. Um, but, you know, maybe a club with a little bit more resources um, and, You know, you can carry them into the mid table and and be a team that gets excited about potentially competing in Europe um, from a Europa League standpoint and just slowly growing, you know, and because he he deserves that. But you're right. Recharging the batteries is probably um, top of the priority list right now for him. Uh, We have this question that came in this morning. Uh, The FA ruled that coughing is now a sending off offense. Uh, If you were to cough on a player. Um, who would the question is, who would be most likely to get the first sending off for coughing on a player?
0: Well, look, when it comes to fouls, when it comes to red cards and it involves a mouth, got to be Luis Suarez, doesn't it? Yeah. Is, is there is there anybody else? Is there anybody else to come to mind? <laughs> I I don't think so. I I just don't think so.
1: Uh, maybe Joey Barton would have been uh, the name that came to mind for me um, <laughs> sure, honey, I know Barton. I know, <laughs> he's not uh, he's not really top of mind anymore but Joey Barton would have been my answer uh, on that one thanks for the question James and Hans with this question uh, what would be your best 11 from the champions of the top 5 European leagues I'll give you mine first Jeff I go Allison from Liverpool at left back I've got Davies uh, Ramos Van Dijk is my two center half Alexander Arnold at right back uh, moving into midfield of my 433, Tiago Casemiro, and I uh, got to get some Italian flavor because there's really nobody else. Marco Verati um, would be also in my, my midfield. And then up top, Mbappe, Lewandowski, and Paolo Di Yeah,
0: I mean, I I agree with you on, on uh, I hate to say this, I agree with you on, on, on all of those calls. Uh, you know, maybe I would think Rafael Varane, might be mm-hmm. a possibility and i really i really like david alaba as well you know again i don't think you can err too much in the side of having too many too many bayern munich players in there i i think he has just been terrific but i really the rest of it it's it's pretty hard to argue with you know maybe maybe well you know i was going to say you're looking at the league champions i mean when, when you first threw that out there, I said, OK, how can Kevin De Bruyne not be in it? But in <laughs> yeah. terms of league champions, I, it's it's hard to argue against any of those any of those picks.
1: Yeah. Um, it, up top, there's just so many options. Sadio Mane um, could have been there as well. Uh, I really debated that one, but I, I had to get Paolo Dybala in there as uh, my uh, Juventus bias. You didn't have uh, any Jordan Henderson? <laughs> no jordan henderson pfa player of the year not in my not in my best 11.
2: <laughs> no Sorry love for that. jordan henderson
1: <laughs> uh we are always happy to hear from you questions at sn jeff blair and at dan Riccio 650 we'll answer them in injury time new episodes out every monday jeff thank you as always champions league back next weekend and we're back next monday it is on the Sportsnet radio network a kick in the grass